The Leslie Marshall Show, the only true democracy in talk radio, of, for, and by you, the people. Live nationwide and streaming live at LeslieMarshallShow.com. Call in with your thoughts at 888-6-LESLIE. Good afternoon and welcome to the Leslie Marshall Show. I am your guest host for the next hour, Michelle Jawando, and it is great to be here with you this afternoon. I'm also really excited to announce that starting uh, here, every week I will be with you for one hour guest hosting on the Leslie Marshall Show, which is such a great honor. Yay! Thank you, team. Really excited because obviously Leslie has amazing listeners, but she's also out here talking about issues that very few people are. She's bringing you the most information and making sure that you understand what's happening in the world, whether it's politics, whether it's um, health care, what's going on in the world. You come to the Leslie Marshall Show and you find out. So it's great to join the family. So <clears throat> I'm looking forward to spending the next hour with you. I have some really great guests joining me. Uh, first half an hour, we'll have Dr. Joya Cray-Perry. Uh, Kristen Ellerby, who's a senior researcher here at the Center for American Progress. And then Emily Tish-Sessman will be joining us again. You know, we often do a lot of political talk when Emily's in the studio. So looking forward to doing that. So let's get started. There is so much to talk about in the world, um, whether it's the untimely passing of Prince, the late great music icon, whether it's the fact that Donald Trump is the presumptive nominee. Um, but And we're going to talk about it all here on the Leslie Marshall Show. And if you want to join in the conversation, give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. But for right now, I'd like to bring in my first guest, who I had the honor and privilege of meeting this past week um, as I participated in a really amazing conference that we'll talk about here on the show. Um, but Dr. Joya Career-Perry is the president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. She's based out of New Orleans, and her Twitter handle, if you want to follow her along, is at D-O-C-C-R-E-A-R-P-E-R-R-Y. Joya, are you on? I am here. I'm so excited to be here. Can you hear me? Yeah, we have you. Yeah. We hear you loud and clear. So thanks so much for joining us. <laughs> so for our well, listeners, <laughs> oh, I'm so sorry. Go ahead. For our listeners, um, let me just give them a little bit of your amazing background. Because when I met you, um, for those who are listening in right now, we sat next to each other at a conference and immediately we knew that there was a kindred spirit. Yeah. And then immediately after we connected and we found out what each other did, we said, okay, yeah, we're going to have to work together (laughs) and figure it out. So Dr. Career Perry is the founder and president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. So why don't you tell our listeners what that is, where you are, and how you came, and what is the mission of your organization? Sure, sure. Thank you so much once again. So I am at the founder of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. We're here in New Orleans, Louisiana, where we just finished with a, a jazz festival, which, you know, was amazing as usual. But if people haven't been before, you got to come down. It's one of our best festivals. We have a lot of festivals here in New Orleans, but it's a great one. And we're going to um, talk about work. that, too. <laughs> oh, great. Good, good. Because I have, you know, we always got a story to tell. <laughs> I love the conference early, but no, the truth. Just so we can get back for that. But 
Um, we have founded to work on black infant and maternal mortality, and our mission and our vision is that every black baby lives to see its first birthday. Um, as an OBGYN by training, I felt like I was, you know, that old parable that you, you see the babies floating down the river and you keep picking one up and picking one up and saying, you know, at some point, the look up is a key. Why are they coming into the river in the first place? And going more upstream to see what is going on that we have two to three times the higher rates of death when it comes to babies dying before the age of one in the black community, as well as moms dying in, um, within a year of delivering two to three times the rate. And so really looking at policy and advocacy and parent engagement and community engagement to really change those structures. And we spent a long time working on kind of downstream, so working on healthcare access, and we're excited about having increased healthcare access with the Affordable Care Act and expansion of coverage. But, you know, that's not going to get us there. That's only 10% of the reasons why we have the outcomes that we have. So really working on some of those other things. So, so Joya, you know, what I find interesting, and I think you either you shared with me or I read in preparation, that the United States actually has an issue when it comes to maternal mortality. Um, yep, and yep. we lag behind uh, many other industrialized nations. What, what are yep. our stats and why? Yeah, you know, the crazy thing is, the part of the, we are the only industrial nation that is going up. Everywhere else, the maternal mortality rates are going down, and ours are increasing. Um, and, and with everything else, you know, when it comes to disparity, when you have people who are poor, underserved, their rates are even worsened. I mean, most things, when it comes to racial disparities, tend to be two to one. When it comes to maternal mortality, it's three to one in a lot of communities. Um, and so... You know, we've spent a lot of energy trying to figure out what that is. We don't collect the data uniformly, and so some of the push we've been doing, trying to get done even on a congressional level, is to have states um, report their data and collect the data in a uniform manner so that we can really get to some of the reasons why women are dying within a year of childbirth. Uh, you know, some of it's healthcare-driven. Um, they're in the hospital, and they get either, um, you know, they have to have blood transfusions or they have to have the three most common reasons for inside of the hospital or having a blood clot, um, having, they go, you know, uh, having preeclampsia or having high blood pressure or also having a lot of bleeding during the delivery. And so those are things that sometimes the hospital system doesn't treat in the same manner for everybody or doesn't have all the things in place to take care of. So you have disparities in those um, deaths. And then also when people get home. You know, there's disparities. Mm-hmm. I, I wrote an article here in Louisiana, the number two reason to die is from gun violence. So we can have a whole conversation about domestic violence and what happens and the mm-hmm. pressures of folks when they are you know, pregnant and, and why that would be the number two reason here. Um, but, yeah. So, one, you know, one of the things that, um, for many of our listeners who are familiar with our work here at the Center for American Progress, um, we spent a lot of time talking about paid family medical leave. And yeah. I think one of the things that also surprised people is we are the only industrialized nation that doesn't have access to paid family medical exactly. leave. So exactly. when you talk exactly. about um, issues around um, kind of health care and how you mm-hmm. even prepare to deliver a child, well, yep. there there are some reasons why you, yep. you could see that kind of if we had wraparound public policy that we could deal with this issue. I mean, at some point in life, every person gets sick. Um, A lot of people will have children or you'll have a loved one that you want to care for. And other countries have recognized the need to do something, but it seems like we have missed that. Uh, Even though we say that we're a country kind of dedicated to families and making sure families are, are taken care of and do well. And even when 
don't even put it in monetary terms for folks. Like in our so in the countries that that women live longer and are healthy and families live longer and do better and are more prosperous, they have at a minimum six months leave when the baby um, go home. And so we think in the U.S., well, that sounds crazy. How can we pay someone for six months and they're not working? We pay. We pay when it comes to medical costs. We pay when it comes to lost days from work. Like our system pays. And so mm. this idea of individualism mm. hurts us so much when it comes to things like this because the, the job that doesn't that says you can't miss because you have a baby and you have to come back to work two weeks later and you're not paid even for those two weeks, they're losing so much in productivity, they're losing so much in human um, capital, mm. they're losing so much in increased cost of health care benefits. You know, so we have to really think bigger and not in the individual how much this wage is costing me to pay for someone that goes home. In the health and the well-being of the community, if we value all of its members and believe that they can all be productive, the only way to get there is to do things like that. And we have so much evidence of this across the globe. I love something that you just said. We have to think bigger. So, you know, if you are just tuning in, this is Michelle Jawando here on the Leslie Marshall Show. We're having a great conversation with Dr. Creer Perry, who is the president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative out of New Orleans, Louisiana. Um, If you want to join in the convo, give us a call, 888-6-LESLIE. When we come back from the break, I want to talk about three things. We got to talk about Jazz Fest, because we were at this concert, uh, at this conference, and you left me to go to the uh, concert so I want to hear about it and then I want to talk a little bit about the uniqueness that is New Orleans you're listening to the Leslie Marshall show life liberty and the pursuit of truth the Leslie Marshall show 8886 Leslie afternoon and welcome back you're listening to the leslie marshall show this is your guest host and starting this today i was gonna say this month but starting today i am happy to announce that i will be joining the leslie marshall family um for one hour every week so get used to me because i'm not going anywhere (laughs) and it's a real honor and a privilege to be with you on this lovely thursday rainy afternoon here in washington dc so coming back after the break we have dr Joya Creer Perry, who is the president of the National Birth Equity Collaborative. If you want to join in the conversation, give us a call at one eight eight six. Leslie or 888-653-7543. You can follow Dr. Joya on Twitter at at D-O-C-C-R-E-A-R Perry, P-E-R-R-Y or follow me at Michelle Jawando. And actually we have a caller and I want to bring Rod into this conversation. Rod, are you still there? Uh, yes. Uh, could you give me a moment to uh, turn off my radio so there's no interference? Oh, sure. Thanks so much, and appreciate you thinking about us. A lot of people don't remember to do that, so thank you, Rod. <laughs> okay, just a moment. So, Joya, we'll bring in Rod when he when he comes back on. But you know, yep. after after kind of this work that you've been doing, I'd love for you to talk a little bit after we answer the the uh, question from Rod, like how oh, you got involved in this work. 
Okay, great. Okay. I would love for you to talk about how you got into this work. Rod, what's yeah. your question? Thanks for joining us today. Okay, uh, and I've been thinking about this. Uh, I do support uh, Roe v. Wade and so forth. Uh, you know, I think that was a correct decision and so forth, and I am for, you know, I think the uh, issue of birth is not given nearly enough attention in this country. Right. And, you know, but at the same time, and I, by, bear in mind I'm looking at this from a scientific and an ethical standpoint. Uh, if you were to take a cell from, the, say, the zygote, and a cell from the uh, prospective mother, uh, there would be no question uh, from DNA analysis that these were, these were two separate individuals. And I'm going to pose a couple of hypothetical questions as, opposing to, as opposed to uh, doing anything further. But uh, basically, from an ethical standpoint, uh, the child's done nothing, you know, regardless of how it was conceived. Uh, is, does it deserve the death penalty? And also, let's say that the mother does not want the child, but the father and or the grandparents do and are willing to take complete responsibility for the child after it is born. What are their rights? So, Rod, I, I appreciate the question. I'm, You know, one of the things that I will say, though, is, you know, Dr. Joya is actually working on how we can have healthy children healthy children come into this world and has spent a lot of her time in her career working towards that end. So, Dr. Joya, maybe you can, in even in, in your response to Rod's question, yes. or um, yep. share with us how you got into this work and why you felt like this was such um, an important, because you were doing tons of things before the, to go right, out and right, start right. your own organization. Yep, you know, and I think what we realized in, in, in the path of my little existence of being in private practice as an OBGYN and then working doing public health um, and spending kind of the city health department here in New Orleans and doing work nationally with um, nonprofits and with community catalysts and March of Dimes, there really wasn't a space that we talked about the fact that black women needed babies to be able to live healthy lives. And we concentrate a lot, to, to Rod's question, we concentrate a lot on the other end, thinking about kind of things around Roe v. Wade or abortion. And we don't spend a lot of time talking about the fact that we have babies that um, we have living, and then they don't get to live to their full potential, their full age, if they die within a year of birth. And how do we lift that voice? And how do we galvanize around the fact that we have issues when it comes to um, being able to raise and care for and nurture um, babies in the U.S. And it's important. And we've ever been, you know, like I mentioned earlier before the break, that um, when it comes to even maternal mortality, that the U.N. is looking at us, this great nation that we are at the U.S., and saying, you guys have got to do better. They've sanctioned us this year on our increase in maternal mortality rates. And so, you know, sometimes we can get into conversations that can divide us. But I think unifying around the belief that all of us should be able to have a baby that can live um, and be healthy, whatever your choices are, is really important. And so um, if we can start in that um, and working on that, um, and then maybe we can then start to some of the other tougher conversations, but I hope we can all agree that we can have healthy babies when they, do, when they are here. That's right. That's right. So now you are in New Orleans, Louisiana. And what I just think is so interesting about your city, and I'd love for you to just tell us a little bit, is a a little bit about like the personality. I think New Orleans is one of those like unique cities that has a personality unto itself. (laughs) And like Jazz Fest is like one of the crowning events down there. So tell us a little bit about what it's like to be uh, New Orleanian and to be there right now. 
you know, and I, I keep saying that I'm going to move, and I guess I'm here forever because I love it so much. And the beauty of the work is I get to travel, but I always get to call this home. And then whenever I'm away, for any amount of time, we were in Europe this summer, and so much of, like, Paris reminded me of New Orleans, and I could see it. And, you know, when I'm in D.C., I love working on policy and, and fighting the good fight. But when I'm home, you know, it's home because we do have our own personality. You know, we, we had... We have different foods. We have the crawfish and the festivals. We start festival season in January, um, right before um, when when um, Mardi Gras season starts, which is on King's Day, which is usually around January 4th to 6th. And we just keep rolling all the way up through <laughs> There's always something. I swear we make up this festival just to go outside and enjoy the sun and listen to a band. And yesterday was Wednesday, and we have what's called Wednesdays at the Square. And the city has bands that come every Wednesday, and they have vendors and you know, so even on a random Wednesday from April through the summer, you can come out and listen to free live music and get some food and and just and enjoy you know our happy hours outside the festival. <laughs> mm-hmm. um, there's not we have you know a very unique this um then for dancers this year it rained the second weekend and still people were out in the mud and in the rain, but um, because it rained and it was thundering and lightning when Stevie Wonder was supposed to come on. My exciting story is that he went to a friend of to uh, Urban Mayfield's jazz club. And so that night, and we got to see him up close. Wow, and that was that's an amazing awesome. moment. Yeah, I can't yeah, even yeah. imagine seeing. I actually told my husband that the next time Stevie Wonder comes to town, that like I will see him because I I loved absolutely loved Prince, and I remember yeah. when I had an opportunity to see him in person, go see him live in concert, and I didn't do that, and I don't want to miss the opportunity to do that with Stevie. Exactly. You know, we've been, we are so blessed here because we get to see people like Prince. He was here in 2014, and he, he what we call, bought out a day of Essence Festival. So he did all of his, he had Janelle Monet, he had all of his folks, Niles Rogers, and he was amazing. Um, and so having the, being able to be a part of that was an incredible big joy of being here in the city. And, you know, we say we're going to wrap I'm Stevie up in bubble wrap, right? That's right. He can't go anywhere. Well, Dr. Joya, I am so sad that 30 minutes have gone by already. I know. We're going to have to bring you back. That's all that means. We've got to talk about Know Her Truths and the amazing work and research that's happening there. And thank you for everything you do. We really appreciate you. You're listening to The Leslie Marshall Show. Truth for all sides of the spectrum. 888-6-LESLIE.
afternoon and welcome back. You are listening to Michelle Jawando for the next hour on the Leslie Marshall Show. I'm really excited to announce that I will be joining you every week for one hour and hope to bring great information and give you new voices so that you can hear what is the latest and greatest happening in our world. So um, if you want to join in the conversation, and I hope you will, give us a call, 888-6LESLIE, 888-653-7543. Now, I told you after the break and that we had some great um, guests. We always have really great guests here on the Leslie Marshall Show. Um, but joining us in studio is Kristen Ellenbow, who is a researcher, a senior researcher here at the Center for American Progress. But the reason I wanted to bring her on today is this really awesome interactive map and report that they just put out that basically for the second straight year in a row that, you know, earned the title of the hottest year on record, we have new research from the Center for American Progress Action Fund that finds that 24 governors and attorney generals publicly deny the reality of climate change. Okay, ladies and gentlemen, let me give you that number one more time. So our research has found, even though that this is the second straight year that earned the title of hottest year on record, 24 governors and attorney generals publicly deny the reality of climate change. Okay, we got some work to do. So (laughs) joining me in studio, thank you so much, Kristen, for being here. Thank you, Michelle. That was a great intro to our report that we released (laughs) yesterday. Um, It's called the 2016 Climate Guide to States. So we took a look at the climate and clean energy record of all 50 governors and 50 attorneys general and, of course, their positions on climate science. And just so we can say that number one more time, um, our research found that 24 governors and attorneys general are on the record explicitly denying the science behind human-caused climate change. The other thing that we found is that more than half of all Americans, or more than 173 million people, have a governor or attorney general who is actively working to block action on climate change. Wow. Wow. Yeah, it's crazy. I mean, so when, you know, if you if you go check out this and for those who want to look at is where your state is, I'm looking at my state of Maryland. We're a mixed bag, which kind of makes sense. Right. Um, when I think about kind of just the politics in the state mm-hmm. um, and just kind of where you hear action, you have some parts that are really sensitive on these issues and other parts that are like, eh, we'll <laughs> wait and see. Um, so I. I think most people, though, when they think about kind of climate change and what happens, they don't think like locally. They don't think that the governor or your state AG has a role to play. So so why did you target and really focus on that group of individuals and in terms of state leadership? Yeah, that is a great question. You're right that I think Congress generally gets most of the attention for climate denial generally and also obstruction um, and blocking specifically action on climate change. But in reality, a lot of the most meaningful action that happens to combat climate change really is going on at the state level. So this is the first year that our Climate Deniers Project took a look at attorneys general. 
Um, and the main reason that we did that was because 27 of them are currently suing the EPA over the Clean Power Plan, which is President Obama's landmark rule aimed at cutting carbon emissions. So while many of the attorneys general aren't actually on the record denying climate change, um, like again, I said, 27 of them are mounting this legal challenge against the Clean Power Plan. Wow. Wow. And now when you're saying attorney generals, that means that state taxpayers who, according to your research, 76 percent of Americans said that they believe climate change is occurring, including 59 percent of Republicans. So in some ways, it sounds like the, the our actual constituents or their constituents are far ahead of these elected officials. Yes, exactly. They are way ahead of their elected of their elected officials on the science behind climate change more americans than ever are sure that humans can are the main cause of global warming but more importantly um, the american people also support by a huge margin um, 70 percent according to a recent yale poll support efforts to cut carbon pollution which is the main driving force behind climate change. So if you were just joining us, this is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. And if you want to join in the conversation, 8886-LESLIE. In studio is Kristen Ellenbow, who is the senior researcher here at the Center for American Progress. And we're discussing this 2016 state climate guide. So what do you do? I mean, if you are living in, like, let me guess, Florida, and your governor is like climate change doesn't exist, although you're in Florida. <laughs> and so you can feel it, you can see it, and you know something's happening. What, what do we tell people to do about that? Florida is a great example because they are on the front lines of climate change, like you said. Um, I mean, Miami is seeing sunny day flooding, um, which is just one warning sign of the sea level rise that could swallow all of Florida at any moment. Well, in the, in the future. Um, <laughs> but I think one thing that this research shows is the importance of state officials. Like you said, Congress gets a lot of attention. They get beat up more than state officials for being for denying the science behind climate change, but it's happening at the state level too. So I think what's really important is holding our elected officials accountable. So, you know, it is interesting to highlight that there are some governors who are taking the lead on defending renewable energy standards, like Mon Montana Governor Steve Bullock, um, Minnesota Governor Mark Dayton, um, and others uh, like Ohio Governor John Kasich, <laughs> who are supporting rolling back renewable energy standards or signing solar fee bills, um, like Oklahoma Governor Mary Fallon. So it seems like there's a lot of action on both sides for those who are standing up um, and then those again. Right. That is absolutely true. And I think we're seeing more and more that Americans are taking their concern about climate change to the polls, um, a to the voting booth. A recent poll showed that Americans, um, registered voters, are four times as likely to vote against 
a lawmaker who opposes action on climate change. Now, one of the figures in, you know, for those who often have heard me on this show, they know I care a lot about voting rights and campaign finance reform, um, both personally as being a former candidate's wife, so I know what that means, and then just as someone who's been a practitioner and really cares about these issues like so many Americans do. Um, But you had a really interesting stat about the number of donations that have been received from... uh, Um, the different players in the fossil fuel energy from these governors and attorney generals. And I'm not one that believes that there's like a direct connection, like just because you receive a check from someone. But what I do that you're then going to do whatever, you know, we think good or bad action. Mm -hmm. But I do believe that we have to pay attention to who's giving money. So, and, and we need to all recognize that, but we also have to say, well, does that mean that they're hearing more, more of their science versus somebody else. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I I agree with you. I think what we found at the state level, which this is the first year that our research has looked at dirty energy contributions um, to state officials, and we found that the governors and attorneys general who are actively working to block action on climate change, including um, those working against the Clean Power Plan, have received more than $23.8 million in contributions from the oil, gas, and coal industry. And for comparison, the other attorneys general and governors, the ones who are supporting action on climate change, received only $7.6 million from wow. the dirty energy industry. Well, we appreciate you, Kristen, for coming in the office. We're going to have to bring you back to the Leslie Marshall Show. Thanks so much, Michelle. Thank you. Life, liberty, and the pursuit of truth. The Leslie Marshall Show. Give her a call now at 888-6-LESLIE. Welcome back. This is Michelle Jawando on the Leslie Marshall Show. And for our listeners who are just tuning in, I was really happy to share that now once a week, I'm going to be coming to you for for at least one hour. I'm so really excited to join the Leslie Marshall family. Yeah, I love that. That was a good one. I'm really happy to join the Leslie Marshall family. You're a great group of listeners. Um, and Leslie just really sets the standard on progressive talk radio. So I appreciate being here. So, you know, I have to, when I usually am here, talk politics because who doesn't love politics? And you know, one of my favorite guests is my dear, dear friend uh, who also happens to be the campaign director for the Center for American Progress Action Fund, none other than Miss Emily Tish Sessman. Hello. Hello. <laughs> Michelle, I didn't know about this regular gig. Congratulations. Yeah. So, like, we're going to talk a lot of politics. Yes. Because <laughs> <laughs> there's stuff happening all the time. Um, and if you want to follow in and join the conversation, you can give us a call at 888-6-LESLIE, which is 888-653-7543. Uh, you can follow us on Twitter at E-M-T-S-U-S-S or at Michelle, M-I-C-H-E-L-E, Jawando, J-A-W-A-N-D-O. It's phonetic. All right. So <laughs> there was a lot that happened this week. 
Um, you want to just give our listeners a recap? Because, like, I don't even know where to start. It was just kind of crazy. You know, I mean, for everyone who hasn't been affected by the news cycle of politics, which I'm sure there are so many of your (laughs) listeners, (laughs) I'm sure I'm really breaking some news here. But breaking, Donald Trump is actually the Republican nominee. It has happened. Yeah, 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 yeah. I mean... You know, you and I are New Yorkers, and so, like, we grew up with, like, Trump just occasionally popping up on our TV screens or in our newspapers. I kept on thinking that people would say, like, oh, this is a joke, and I'm going to wake up. Like, I kept on waiting for that moment, and it never came. Yeah. Yeah. I do. That's actually a funny point. Because I feel like we he's always been our joke. Right, right. <laughs> We've always laughed at him. We've always known he was a joke. Like, he's always been around. Always. And for the first couple of months, it was like, oh, we're sharing our New York joke with you, America. Yeah. But it is not a joke it's, anymore. It's happening. It's happening. It is really, it is happening. And Republicans are freaking out. You know, I do you think they're freaking out? Because the reaction and the way that Trump has been winning has been overwhelming in a lot of their states. And so it's not just he's getting by. It is a mandate that Donald Trump is now the GOP leader for their party. Well, that is very true. I mean, his support has been huge among Republican primary voters, particularly um, in closed primary states. I mean, Pennsylvania, we don't think of it as Pennsylvania as being you know, so out there. He won every single county, every single county. In in Indiana, in the last primary that closed it up on Tuesday night, he won evangelicals two to one over Cruz, who is an evangelical. Right. So, I mean, his support has been in every category. It's pretty unbelievable. And the Republican, you know, we were, they keep talking about it as a Republican establishment. I think basically what they're talking about is the Republicans have had this unholy marriage over the last 10 to 15 years of social conservatives, those who have done very poorly economically, like working class white males specifically, um, and big business. Mm-hmm. They've had this sort of like unholy marriage between them where the big business had somehow convinced, this is the what's the matter with Kansas, right? Right, this is totally that, yeah. Right, like they had convinced a lot of people to be voting against their own interests, mm-hmm. and that the small government was better for them, even though they were actually currently living off of programs that would that benefited them greatly. Um, and they did it, and it went even step even further in 2010 with the Tea Party movement, mm-hmm. that the Republicans embraced it. They could have said... Look, we don't actually believe in burning down the government. Right, right. Kind of. And we actually think that our president is legitimate and that his birth certificate actually says he should be able to be president. Certainly. Um, That small thing. Right, right. The birthers, they just embraced them. Like, they could have said, get out of here. Yeah. By the way, let's not forget, Trump was the number one birther. Exactly. So they allowed it to happen. They allowed this to grow within their own party. And now they see what is coming out and what is reflected through Trump, which is, you know, it is racist sexist it is um, homophonic homophonic i mean it is offensive you know against the like he is affecting everyone (laughs) he is an equal opportunity bad guy (laughs) like everybody gets an equal opportunity opportunity offender yeah yeah absolutely um but they embraced everything that that built to him being popular so now it's very difficult for them to say this is the party that we created even though they know that at this moment it is extremely unappealing and it's bad for the country, quite frankly. You know, the other question that I had is at sometimes I felt like 
Trump, you know, Cruz was a true believer. Uh, you know, a lot of our listeners know that I worked on the Senate for a really long time. Um, he is an ideologue. It's real for him. Um, and that kind of viciousness that you kind of see in the twinkle of his eye when he talks about, quote unquote, an opponent or someone who doesn't share his worldview, um, that is a real feeling. But Trump, I always felt like sometimes it's an act, like he doesn't quite believe it. But now that doesn't matter anymore because he's the one who's leading the party uh like isn't that a problem like the the fact that he is so malleable the fact that it is not real for him that he just kind of says whatever he thinks at that moment or whoever just briefed him told him to think that um there's some danger there for us as a country and i don't even know how a party aligns itself with his policies or his beliefs because i'm not sure he knows where they are Oh, I mean, you remember there was that moment during one of the debates, during one of the Republican debates, I believe it was one of the Fox News hosted debates, where he actually changed his position on immigration on the stage. Right. They were right. reading to him from his own website, and he was like, I don't know who said that. I don't know who said that. Like, <laughs> I don't know where you got that from. Oh, I mean, your own website. Right, right. <laughs> <laughs> like, he changed it right up there. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, I mean, how do you align yourselves? And the... The question going to each one of the Senate candidates today right, is, right. he is the leader of your party. Do you support him? Like, you know that he will drag you down. If we look at who is up right now in terms of the control of the Senate, the senators that are up for re-election, right now the Senate is controlled by a majority Republicans, and the ones that are being re-elected this year were the ones that were elected in 2010 the Tea Party wave. Yeah. So many of them are far too conservative for their states already. Yeah. And they yeah. have spent the last two years trying to find positions they can moderate on so that they can appeal to a more moderate base. Kiliaya. You know, I I often think about when I when I think about where Senate Republicans are right now, um, with Trump now at the head of their party, I think about the phrase, you break it, you buy it, right? <laughs> like, you, you can't say that you're a part of this party. You can't say that these are the ideals you care about. And now when you have someone who is really actually saying the things that you have been pushing and feeding and giving people to the these issues that divide literally on every issue, um, you've been feeding that to your base and now they've given you who they want and now all of a sudden you're like oh I don't think I want it no you broke it you you broke it yeah I think that is absolutely right I mean many of the positions that look a lot of Republicans are saying they think he's too too extreme he's too far out there he's too offensive but I mean look at some of his core positions like you know a wall deporting the undocumented those have actually become mainstream Republican That's right. positions. That's right. And many of them will reflect it. They just don't like the way he's presenting it. You know, one of the things that I have a question about or, you know, would love your feedback, because I know you've traveled to some of these different states. What do we think that the convention is actually going to look like? You know, do we is there any play for them still to try to do a contested convention? Or at this point, he's just going to go in there with the delegates and that's it. Well, it's very interesting. I mean, the majority of people that go to conventions that are elected as delegates and go to conventions are people that have been involved with the party for a long time and continue to be involved. So those are the people that actually really don't want Trump. I mean, those have been elected as delegates in the state as as Trump delegates. Yes, they will be there. But it's going to be a very different kind of vibe. Um, I mean, different than I think we've ever seen before. We had been anticipating there being a real contested convention. So another candidate actually trying to grab the nomination. 
that seems like it's probably not a possibility anymore. Although it was very interesting to see the coverage Tuesday night in Indiana when it was clear that Cruz was going to have to drop out. Kasich was going to have to drop out as Trump was getting closer to wrapping up the nomination. It was interesting to see. I mean, it's been sad to see like these longstanding party Republicans struggling on live television with how to handle the question. <laughs> you know, the, the attorney Ben Ginsburg is widely understood as to be to understand the the Republican Party rules the best of anybody. Yep. And he was going through this like moment of self who, who, <laughs> he was in pain, as he I think a lot of people pain. in this country are. Listen, this is Michelle Jawando. That was Emily Tish Sussman. We so appreciate you for joining us for the last hour. This is the Leslie Marshall Show, and I'll be back next week. Have a great one. <laughs>